Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Dr. Heather Petrocelli. She's a leading expert in queer spectatorship of film. She is the person behind Queer for Fear, a massive research project into the LGBTQ plus community and their relationship to horror and the author of the forthcoming book, Queer for Fear, Horror Film, and the Queer Spectator. Welcome to the show! Yay! Very excited to be here. Thank you. <laughs> really excited to have you here. Uh, I, I remember seeing when your um, survey, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I remember seeing when your survey com- came out, and I was like, I gotta remember to get you on the podcast. So I'm, I'm glad that this is all happening, finally. But take us back to the beginning. How did you get introduced to horror? I'm sure this is a I don't know how long you've been doing this podcast. I know that there were maybe hundreds of episodes. Is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure you hear this all the time, but I kind of don't remember not being attracted to the dark and the macabre. Like I was one of those kids that just was always attracted to something that was more foreboding and you know, I'm, I'm just looking at the two of you. I think I'm older, considerably older than both of you. So I also grew up Me in a time. Me for sure. I am a child. I'm 41. Okay. Maybe not considerably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 29. I'm going to go with considerably. Um, <laughs> you know, fair. I mean, you're good. People can do math and figure out how old I am once I start talking about the film I brought. But uh, so my love of horror just became something like I can't actually trace when I didn't love horror, but horror means lots of things to different people. And when you're a little mm-hmm. person, horror can literally just be, you know, the Wizard of Oz and the Flying Monkeys. Yep. We so. just talked to someone about that the other the other week about how Wizard of Oz scarred them for life because of the, the Flying Monkeys and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
It's like one of those things that thing you know your podcast is based on these things that are scarred for life. It's funny how certain things stick with you. So when you see them, you know we have relationships to our cultural artifacts, right? So it's like mm-hmm. I'm not scared of the flying monkeys anymore, but there's still this like visceral reaction I have to certain things from when I was yep. a kid that scared the shit out of me. Uh, <laughs> so. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of like how I started. My gateway was probably the Wizard of Oz and then things like Scooby-Doo just kind of kept them going and it never stopped (laughs) to the point where I decided to go to school to study horror. Hell yes. Do you remember, um, I mean, Wizard of Oz, it sounds like was your gateway, but do you remember, was that, would you consider that your first horror movie experience? I guess in retrospect, like assigning that, like looking back at what kind of was the first real thing that attracted me because I was so little. I mean, I was probably still crapping my you know pants like you, I saw as a little little kid because on TV mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. But as far as like the first horror movie I saw where I knew I was watching a horror movie, it was mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead. Okay. Oh, so cool. um, I, I've told the story before, but I'll just quickly say it. Uh, my I come from generations of New Yorkers. My family's from like the Bronx and Brooklyn. Okay. And when I was young, going into grade school, my mom decided that she had like she wanted more for the family, so she wanted to get out of New York. So she decided to move to Arizona. Didn't know anything about Arizona, and Arizona has these monsoon seasons and it floods. <laughs> So very shortly after we moved there, we got evacuated because of a big flood and we wound up in a gymnasium and the whole community, the area of the community was in this gymnasium and it was just a chaotic scene and no one was going to be sleeping in their army cots that night. Right. So I was just wandering around as a tween trying to figure out what to do and probably a little bit bewildered and dazed and all those things. And there was a room where this guy had a 16 millimeter projector and he was screening. He did Pink Flamingos and Night of the Living Dead. What a double feature. And my life was never the same. I mean, I can understand why. (laughs) (laughs) And I was probably, I mean, I was looking back, I was too young to probably see either of those. But, um, how old were you again? I think I was about uh, 11 or 12. Okay. Holy that is a formative cow. time to see those both of those movies. Some John yeah. Waters. Yeah. So I wasn't like... supposed to be there, I don't think. And it was sixteen millimeter and it was like it also kind of created a love of you know, when 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 you're my age, it's like I didn't not everything was always celluloid, so it was like mm-hmm. but the fact that like a movie, a movie on celluloid could be screened outside of a theater, I it blew my mind. Those movies blew my mind. I'm sure I was terrified, I'm sure I was confused. It's long enough ago that like the the mythology around that night is bigger than the truth of that night. Right. Yeah. But right. I grew up worshiping John Waters and horror. <sighs> so it worked. That's amazing. Thank you, Arizona's monsoon season, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like... I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, know, I, I think about that sometimes and how like life is full of all these weird turns. And if my mom hadn't decided, I mean, Arizona didn't work out for long because it was awful for us. Um, so then I wound up being a Californian for a long time. But what a change going from New York to Arizona, though. Like that's a. Yeah, it was genuinely that's, that's a mistake. Quite a... <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a shock to the system for uh, probably a variety of reasons. But wow. Yeah. I mean, I think the good part about it is that it was a very visceral understanding that there are all kinds of people on the planet because Mm. 
I didn't know anything about Native culture when I was in New York. I didn't know anything about Mexican people when I was in New York. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's more to me being a dumbass as a kid, but that was also the education system back in the 70s. Um, yep. So to kind of be moved to a place where it was a whole different people, and then people I was used to in New York were no longer there, or at mm. least not as visible. So it was, mm-hmm. it was an important lesson, I think. So, And I got john and horror out of it so i mean it was meant to be right you know yeah (laughs) you mentioned not being able to remember if you were scared that night but were you generally scared of horror movies and horror media when you were younger did it get under your skin yeah it did i think that that's also true for a lot of people and it's become something um it becomes something where i wouldn't say i was like always a scaredy cat but I was kind of a scaredy cat, just not realizing that I was, if that makes sense. And I think it had to do with the fact that as I was coming into understanding my own sexuality and how I was different than the world, I kept forcing myself into scenarios, whether they be real life or filmic, that kind of made me feel really uncomfortable and scared me and gave me nightmares because it meant mm. that I was going to survive the real life horror of everything. So, Right. Oh, okay. I- it always that kind of goes back to like I always remember Wes Craven saying that like horror movies are kind of a boot camp for the psyche. Like the idea that it helps you like process real world trauma and that's something that I've always found and I think it's one of the unsung pleasures of horror films of a good horror film. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I an entire chapter of the forthcoming book is all about you know queer insidious trauma mm. and how horror helps Queer specifically, this is, you know, this is a very queer project. So it's like horror does this for all kinds of populations, but I am mm-hmm. focused on the queer community and right. about how horror can create a release valve for a specifically queer trauma. I mean, literally wow. the trauma of being queer in a cishet society. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm curious because I, I, I guess, I mean, the answer could be as easy as you saw Pink Flamingos. But do you remember the first time that you saw like queer representation in cinema? Well, actually, it would be a spoiler for the movie I picked. Okay. All right. Yep. <laughs> All right. But it was one of the first, it, it was one of the first, it, it's the dyke word. It was the first time I heard the word dyke. And when I saw this movie, it was right as I was 100% like really understanding, oh my God, I'm one of those. <laughs> so, mm. oh, okay. but I think that, you know, we, we talk about Gator, at least we used to always talk about Gator, but um, mm. I think when you're young and you feel out of step with much of the world, you have, you're drawn to certain things. So like just weird things, like I've always loved Paul Lynn. I was always attracted to, like not like physically attracted, but I always attracted mm-hmm. to the personality of Paul Lind or I was obsessed with Endora, you know, so all of a sudden when you grow up and you realize that these people who you were obsessed with who you had no idea that they were actually gay were gay you're like holy crap like yeah what is this so i'm trying to give other early um i'm trying to give like the first real queer i honestly i think the film i picked was the first time i was like i saw like because i i was around 12 or 13 when i saw the movie the first time well we'll get to that yeah, yeah. So do you still get scared now when you watch a horror movie or have you kind of become more desensitized to horror films? I think sadly I'm a little bit desensitized, but the whole premise of horror is that, you know, when horror is effective, horror is effective, right? So I'm not Mm -hmm. like my 
physiological responses. Like I jump, I get startled at jump scares, but I also find most jump scares really cheap and stupid. I'm not like, it's not, that's not my kind of horror. I'm always intrigued. Like I know, uh, let's see, I'm trying to give the last big, Oh, you know, on Instagram, all of a sudden you turn, you, you go on Instagram, then, then everyone's talking about one thing. You're like, well, shit, I need to hurry up and pay attention to this. And yeah. I think the last time that happened was the sadness. Uh-huh. From, okay. And I, yep. and I was so excited to be like totally grossed out or whatever to feel particular feelings. And I watched it and I was like, eh. I mean, oh, wow. interesting. <laughs> oh, tell me more. Wow. You tell me. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's well, some fucked up scenes. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I'm not I, like a monster, guys. <laughs> that was nothing. <laughs> uh, no, that, that movie really like affected me on on a visceral level. Yeah. Just like the particularly the way it ends, where it it just. I mean, spoiler alert. You can skip ahead, listeners, if you haven't seen it. But like, just the idea that uh, we've been following this guy along you know, trying to reach his love. And by the end of it, he's no better nor worse than the people he tried to save earlier. Like the the idea that deep down inside, he's as evil as the rest of the people <laughs> out there is like such a, a heartbreaking thing and like a horrifying thing on top of like the very visceral. <laughs> I got queasy at a couple parts of that. I mean, so, yes. Okay. Let me backpedal so I just don't sound like a completely desensitized <laughs> monster. But I did. No, I've seen people say that about yeah. about it. Like, yeah, you know, it's you. You watch you watch a lot of French extreme uh, extre- uh, new French extremity movies, and this is not, hell doesn't hold a candle to it. So I, <laughs> I get it. I don't think that. Yeah, I think the thing I, I will say my my partner when we got together, she was like, I don't really like horror, and I was like, Yes, you do. Everyone does. <laughs> you just it's just we have different labels, and there's like a zillion subgenres, and there's all different things. Like there's something, there's something. Now I would think, I think she actually would say she is a horror fan now. She just realizes that some horror is not for her. It's not for her. I did know that that was not going to be for her. So I watched it by myself and she just happened to walk in at a moment and she looked at me, she looked at the television and then she looked at me and she's like, is that dude like skull fucking her eyeball? And I'm like, Yes, don't judge too harshly. Let, let me get And she just like shook her head. Like, just kidding. And she just it walked is exactly- away. And I was just like, I am trash. I watch trash. <laughs> That's what happens to me with my fiance. He's like, What you watching? And I'm like, Oh, this, this like oh, this movie about a kid who dies or whatever. He's like, sounds about right. And then like walks out of the room. He's just like, mm-hmm. and I'm like because he he also likes horror movies, but I like extreme uh, horror, and he doesn't un- he doesn't understand how I can watch extreme horror. But yeah, and I again, think we um, all like yeah. our we all like our stuff. Yeah, it's like I remember you know you asked me kind of films that well you didn't ask that really, but like I'm trying to think of like films that really got to me. It's been a really long time. I think I'm kind of broken and dead inside. So the last film that this was many many years ago now, but I had didn't know anything about martyrs. And someone okay. was like, you need to put Mar- you need to watch this movie. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And I put it in and I was so, it was such an experience and I don't even know how to, what adjectives to use around the experience of martyrs mm-hmm. that when it ended, I was, I felt kind of tingly and numb and shocked and I couldn't quite 
figure out what I just watched. So I turned around and watched it again. Whoa. And I, wow. okay. I, and I haven't had that in a long time. But there's movies I love. Thought Titan mm-hmm. was amazing. Thought X was great. Like there's like, you know, there's lots of movies I love. I just haven't had that real kind of something that yeah. clinches you and you have nightmares all night. I, I have more nightmares <laughs> about the real world, which also goes back to the film <laughs> that we're going to talk about. <laughs> So, wow. I'm just curious, like, what are the last films that really got you to? Um, I mean, for me, like, I always go back to Hereditary. Hereditary, like, really fucked me up. Mm, let's talk about your family dynamics. Um, well, oh, I know. There, <laughs> you there's a lot to unpack there. Not for me. Uh, <laughs> pack it down. Pack it down. I, I went and saw Hereditary. And so this is like, just, this is just like, okay, let me back it up. My main argument, if I had one sentence or two sentences about all of my years of research, thinking and talking about horror film and reading about horror film and writing about horror film is that horror is a queer genre understood queerly by queer audiences. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's the thing. But the underlayment of what I kind of really discovered with doing that survey and writing and reading and researching and talking to people is that our love of the genre is it's idiosyncratic, right? So you had hereditary fuck you up. I went and saw it opening night, sold out crowd, and I kept laughing my way through because that's probably how I process my trauma. And so I was just laughing. And this like straight couple next to me just turned to me finally at one point and was like, why are you fucking <laughs> laughing? This movie is not funny. And I said, it's hilarious to me. She literally just said something about like that fucking face on your fucking face. Like that is high camp and there's no other way. And I basically was like, buddy, it's funny. And then by the time it ended, they were just like the ending of hereditary for some people, it falls apart. You know, it's like, I kind of like it because I like ridiculous oh, shit. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love the ending of Hereditary. It's just like, of course, that's the best way to end it. But right? It just like t- just take something that was been been on eleven and just take it to twelve. You know, it's just amazing. like go all the way. So it's just one of those things that's really interesting to me because I actually responded to Hereditary as high camp, even if it wasn't created that way. Mm. But in my survey, <gasps> I asked people what their scariest film was and i just asked for one film so i want everyone to choose the one so it's kind of like your podcast for all these years i was really shocked that for the younger generation it's hereditary and for the older generation it's the exorcist which makes sense because yeah yeah. i find the exorcist very funny (laughs) see and the exorcist traumatized me as a child So, Mary Beth too. It did. It did. I I rewatched it the other day, and it wasn't as scary. It was wild. I think I've talked about it so many times at this point. I'm just like, this is boring, <laughs> which is terrible. But like, because my fiance had never seen it, so I was showing The Exorcist for the first time, which was cool. He was like, "What's happening?" I'm like, "Oh my god, what an experience!" Um, but the movie for me, like Hereditary, was no, it was Terrified, which is a um, Argentinian film that that one actually made me turn my lights on. But then the one that really, so one that didn't scare me, but like got me, like really got me like trauma wise is hypochondriac, which isn't out yet. But like that made me have a panic attack. (laughs) Oh, that sounds like, I mean, if it's some, is it just about a hypochondriac or is it? No, it's like, it's, it's about a queer guy who 
who starts realizing that he he might he has inherited his, the mental illness from his mother and like what that means. And I am going through something similar as a queer woman figuring out that she might have inherited the mental illness from her dad. So it's like very similar to the stuff I'm going through right now, and it's it goes to some crazy places. But mm-hmm. it it scared me more like existentially than anything else. But but those are the best those are the best frights to me, honestly. That like existential dread. I mean, because I. Th- I I was just on another friend's podcast talking about my love of The Return of the Living Dead. Oh, it's such a good movie. It's such a good movie. movie. I love that movie. We were talking about my relationship to comedy and horror because I do really love like horror comedies. Okay. And I said, but when I was a kid, as as well as movies where I saw it in the movie theater, I snuck into it. It was in a mall, very 80s. I love it. And I laughed, but it still scared the shit out of me mm-hmm. when I was a teenager. And and what it tapped into was that existential anxiety that I live in in a constant state. Like, and I'm, that's never gone away. It's just part of who I am, a giant mess of existential anxiety. <laughs> so those, uh-huh. like, for, you to, for you to give those reviews, I'm like, well, I got to like make sure I see Terrified from Argentina. And I got to make oh, sure Terrified I see... Oh, Terrified is really good. I mean, I, it's, it's there's a lot of jump, like kind of dread, like it builds just to jump scares. And there's a lot of like surprising imagery in it but it's a movie that got under my skin too i saw it in the movie theater and uh at at a festival and was like just shell-shocked when i left it just it has a lot of really yeah please do i will yeah and hypochondriac comes out uh in august on vod and it's just like it's also it's just very queer too so i feel like you Mm -hmm. have to watch it because of your (laughs) research yes yes. actually speaking of research yeah um can you tell us more about your research, like the the survey that you've the survey the survey and... that you've worked on, and kind of what that research work entails. Yeah, I yes, the answer is yes, I can. But <laughs> <laughs> um, <When> will you? <laughs> I, will, no, I will. I will. I will not. I'm just kind oh, of rambling. Okay. <laughs> yes. So about the research, the way it all came about is we've kind of talked about it. I was a lifelong. I have been a lifelong horror fan. I love horror, but. When I was a kid, number one, girls weren't supposed to be in horror. It was the the domain of young, kind of just like white, straight boys. And when I got old enough to be like, I'm going to go be a horror fan legitimately, the first thing I did was I went to a weekend of horror, Fangoria weekend of horrors in the 80s. And it was atrocious. It was one of the most unwelcoming spaces I had ever been in. So I was like, well, this fucking sucks. Like... (laughs) What the fuck? I was, I was, it was a very, um, clearly I'm still traumatized, even though Fangoria is amazing now. And I love that now what they get is what I call the, you know, straight white cishet horror bros complaining that it's too political and too, Mm -hmm. you know, all that. I'm like, yes. And that's like a complete, it feels like a complete turnaround in my lifetime. Yep. Yeah. And, um, when I was in my mid to late twenties, whatever math, um, I met a group of friends in San Francisco and one of my friends from those times had a a screening called Midnight Mass in San Francisco. Um, He had a persona, drag drag queen persona called Peaches Christ. I was going to say, so you said Midnight Mass in San Francisco. I was like, is that Peaches? Yeah, yeah. So I used to, I used to work for Joshua um, at a movie theater and at that movie theater, Joshua was always very, you know, we connected because we both had a lifelong love of John Waters and horror, became really good friends. And Joshua is 
I feel like kind of a gener you know, a generation below John, maybe two generations below John, but like had that same, I'm going to build a community of crazy queers and do crazy things. And so mm -hmm. Midnight Mass was the first time I got to be in sold out audiences with majority queer people watching Colton mm. horror films. And it was like, it, it was a life affirming moment. It was very, I had never experienced that. I had never understood that the way I understood horror and the way I connected to it was actually about something beyond just who I am as a human, all of my weird little personal proclivities and, you know, idiosyncratic, you know, idiosyncratic aspects of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I've basically been a junkie for wanting to see horror around queer people, but that's a very, it feels rare. It feels rare to yeah. be able to gather in those spaces. So fast forward, you know, 20 years and in 2016, I was one of those people who was just dumb enough to really think that the orange anus, like that would, that was never going to happen. Like he was never going to win the presidency. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it was a dark time. My brother had just died. It was all, everything was like traumatic and sad. And I was like, this is awful. And I thought, why not go back to school? Like, why not? Let's add to this. Um, it, but the thing was, is I wanted to, my partner's very supportive. and was like, you know, you should do something with horror. It's like, this is your thing. And so I wanted to be able to see if I could ever quantify through basically quantitative and qualitative data that there is a distinct relationship that queer people have with the horror genre. And so I did it via a survey and it was an incredibly successful survey. So did you take it? I, I'm pretty I sure I did I when it came out. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I did. I honestly cannot remember, but I'm I'm fairly certain I did. Yeah, awesome. Because it's been because you did that when when was that? That it was, was back it was in like, yes, tw 2019. Doesn't it feel like uh? Doesn't that basically a feel like, ago? like the Mesozoic yeah. era? Seriously, it's really. I, I have like such a bad memory over the last two years, particularly ever since I got COVID back in 2020. That like I don't honestly remember anything like it's just like <laughs> things just go out of my brain like that i'm fairly certain i did well wow. because i remember it coming around and, and floating around on the internet yeah um well thank you and it was it was one of those things like to just give like a quick props to everyone who took it i mean its success has very little to do with me it was something that i, I did take put it. out i'm sorry i just remembered i did take the survey i was like you i did. know i did okay yes i remembered now awesome well then Jesus. thank you both of you uh it made it it was one of those things that I put it out there in academia, you know, it's like to prove something, you kind of have to always kind of top the person before you had done something. Yep. So I really mm -hmm. needed to get 220 responses. And the moment you put a survey out into the world, you're really like, eh? eh? Yep. Uh huh. <laughs> so I had 4,107 responses. It is the largest empirical study in um, horror studies period not queer shit just period holy so, shit yeah that's fucking amazing fuck yeah, yeah. And, and the the awesome part of it is is and, and like there was all kinds of little surprising things like i've been asked before like what was the most surprising thing you want to know the most surprising thing to me fucking bisexual women were the number one respondents that was super surprising to me <laughs> mary Beth's like yo bisexual <laughs> finger guns that's <laughs> me. Um, and it was like 
you know, I don't know if this is like a terrible thing to admit. So I remember being like, oh, God, it's going to totally skew the data in a particular way. It didn't. <laughs> I was going to ask it. So is there did 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 you get anything? Because like you obviously 4,000 is a lot of aggregate data. Did you was there anything like really surprising coming out of that? It, it's going to sound like a, almost a non-answer in the sense the most surprising thing is how united we are in our queerness. I mean, okay. that was the most surprising thing. The most surprising thing is that whatever kind of maybe internalized biphobia I had going on, I don't know. But I remember thinking very distinctly, oh, this is going to make it not like it's, it, they're not going to feel the same way about horror that I do. And it turns out across all of the demographic information, like, and I, you know, we did, um, it was gender, sexual orientation, race, age, education level, relationships. There's overwhelming consensus in almost every single category. And there's very few instances that like, so like there's little fun little tidbits that you find because it's such a massive mountain of data that you can, I mean, of someone who really, really, really knows data. Like I know data enough to like be able to do what I did, but they're real true mm -hmm. data nerds that could mine probably for a decade with that stuff. And like little weird things like, um, I'm trying to go, oh, what one that like I wrote about very briefly in a footnote was like, um, cause I'm like, oh, someone needs to go do this. Like trans men have a very strong attachment to werewolf films. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I've heard, I've seen a lot of people talking about that, but like not with the research that you have, not with like the kind of the data points that you have. Yeah. That's so fascinating. And then like, uh, you know, American Indians have, the strongest, like they, the data shows that they report to love horror the most and feel and report the most knowledge about horror. And it, and, huh. you know, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, especially yeah. when I write about horror having this trauma, I mean, like that's a very traumatized group of humans uh -huh. <laughs> in American history since we're all on Turtle Island. Um, so those are kind of like little tidbits. But if you ask more questions, I can maybe answer them. I'm just trying to think of other. So where did you get your Where did you get your PhD? And like, where did you do a lot of this like this research? Uh, when I was doing the research to figure out what school to went to, I was trying to figure out like I have my first BA I got in cinema studies a while ago. Then I got had to get a second BA at one point in my life, and I did a history degree. And then I got a master's in history years after that, and I was like, oh, do I want to do a film program? Do I want to do a history program? And then I was watching a documentary where this guy came on screen and I knew he was gay because you just know sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was at a gothic center. And I was like, well, what? So I did start doing research in, in England. There are gothic centers and you can get degrees in gothic studies. So I wound up applying to the first, it was the Manchester Center for Gothic Studies that's affiliated with the university in Manchester, England. So that's where I did it. See, and that's why I thought, because when I initially reached out to you, I was like wondering about time zones because I thought, because I knew that you went to Manchester and I was like, so I assumed you were over in the UK. So is it an online? Can you do it online? Or did you go there? I did go there. I, you don't have to go there, but I did choose to go there before the pandemic. I went each year okay. for a number. I would like the first time was like six weeks. And the second time was, I think, eight, almost eight weeks. Wow. And that was just because this is great. It's great to meet you. And I can kind of see you. Mary Beth, you're a little fuzzy, but I can see, you know, I can see your humans and you're, you know, we're connecting. But it's not the same as if we were sharing the yeah. same 
space. Right. And so I thought it would be important plus access to libraries and I don't know. So, but you can do entire programs online. You know, you need a computer. So yeah. Cause that's fascinating. Cause like I, I was a, I was an English, uh, I went to school to learn English and I've always been like huge fan of Gothic literature. So the fact that you, there was like this Gothic center, I was like immediately in my mind going, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> oh, and then, I mean, they're your people. I was, I was a film person and most of the people there are Gothic lit people. Okay. And I will say as a film person, as a former film student, and then as a grad student in history, I've been to cinema, um, conferences and i have been to history conferences gothicists are the best people <laughs> i love to hear that yeah I, I love hearing that well and i picking your brain about phd because i i got my master's in horror like in horror film film studies but all i read all about horror and i wanted to go into get my phd and then i decided not to for now because academia burned me out while i was doing it but I'm always like so interested in getting a PhD in something with horror because like I'm obsessed with it, obviously, and it's it's something in the back of my mind. But I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know. I have a very uh, oh, how do I be diplomatic? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a very complicated relationship to academia. I think it's mostly corporate bullshit these days, and I think that school should be free and this will also be something that kind of comes up when we talk about the movie like i think that to have the space to think long and deeply about something is incredible and i had you know i had these visions i wanted to be you know i don't even smoke a pipe i don't even smoke but i wanted to have like my like you know cardigan with my like leather here my leather little elbow patches with my pipe and i want to sit around and talk with all these smart people about yep. horror that's yep. not what happens you wind up mm. jumping a bunch of fucking bureaucratic hoops the people I, I will do a plug for the manchester center for gothic studies in the sense that the humans i worked with who work at that institution they are not the problem the problem is the administrative side yep. and i think it i mean i've been you know everything before going there all my experiences in higher education were in the u.s i there the neoliberal capitalism is infected everything and higher education has got problems across the board across at a global scale. But I did find my experiences in England a little less troublesome than some of my last experiences in the U S and that's mainly okay. probably because I think the U S just cost so much more. So I, mm. when people ask advice, I'm always like, don't pay for your degrees, find someone who will fund your degrees. Cause you know, the number of kids I know who have, anywhere between a hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt like oh shit really Fuck. not that high but for my master's yeah it was yeah, high it's just because it's, i went it's, to like university of chicago and it was like really cool to have it on your resume and then i was like but they don't give a lot of funding yeah of course so which yeah that's by design oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah oh yeah can I ask um, what you wrote about? Yeah, I wrote about um, Coralie Farge's Revenge and the importance of um, women-directed uh, rape revenge films and how she subverts the concept of the male gaze and kind of creates a new kind of gaze in the rape revenge space that is really important in terms of how we process trauma through horror. Awesome. Well, I mean, yeah. just going back to the U.S. about the data, so... There was overwhelming consensus on the 
positive end and on the negative end in the sense of when I say consensus, like the majority of the respondents answered one way or another way. And I asked questions about favorite sub uh, subgenres of horror. Rape Revenge had a consensus in being like kind of like the least loved, but I also Very allowed fair. people to write, but I also let people to write in um, qualitative answers to certain things. And I did a bunch of oral history work. And the thing I learned when I was writing about my trauma thing is was exactly what you wrote about is that for some people, if, especially if they've had sexual violence and trauma in their life, they do not want to go down that road. But for some people, it's necessary for them to go down that road to. Yeah. So, yeah, it's I think like that's, I think I, awesome. I'm, a, I'm a sexual assault survivor and it's been really helpful. But I also like very much understand that I pro I'm in the minority of that. But I also think that more people are talking about that more, like more now, especially because I think rape revenge movies are turning from complete exploitation and like woman with gun goes crazy. And they're much more nuanced and introspective about that and more about like PTSD and this and that kind of stuff. So I think it's just an interesting shift I've seen recently with the number of not men behind the camera when it comes to telling those stories. Yes. Really I mean, cool. the number of quotes I had about, I even, I even wrote about this a little bit where it's just like this, I believe how do I even say this the right way? Like I, my, my, this whole arm is the sleeve of universal monsters. Like I love many errors uh, we've had in horror. So I love, you know, I love hammer. I love all of the eighties mm -hmm. crap. Cause that's like, that was the stuff when I was going into theater, sneaking into theaters, but this era of horror, you know, maybe like what we call it, maybe the last decade and where we're, where you can see we're going as like, I think that we are living in the true golden age of horror i think it hasn't happened and i'm really excited and i'm now i just want to read your work and i wish i had read it before i finished my book i can send it to you if you want to read it yeah i'd love to That'd especially because cool. i wrote all about you know trauma what i did was i took it and i wanted i didn't want to always just stay in the dark because i think that there's a joyousness to queerness so i took trauma and then i basically ended the chapter all about camp because i have a high love of camp and i do think trauma and camp are related oh yeah which, back to hereditary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've, you've mentioned your book a couple times, and I do, before we do move to, on yeah, to talk yeah. about the movie, I just want to ask, so I'm guessing that the book kind of stemmed from your, your survey and your dissertation yeah. work, right? Yes, yes. How's the, how's the book writing coming? Is there a release plan? Well, yeah, so what the book is, is like, so here's another pitch for if you want to do your PhD, just don't pay a whole lot of money for it. <laughs> um Basically, once the way you can write dissertations these days is that you can essentially write a book. You know, you okay. have to do some kind of hoops and jumps and, you know, this jump through these hoops to like pass what you need to pass and get all the approvals. But then you kind of take out some of the signposting and then you kind of have a book. So the book really is a truncated version of the dissertation. So the dissertation okay. was like 142,000 words. The book is 100,000 words. Wow. But killing 42,000 word babies was very painful. <laughs> yeah, I, can I imagine. cannot even imagine. So um, I'm at the stage where I just finished all of my word murder and it's due to the publisher in a, a week. Oh my <laughs> oh, god! Wow. Yeah, that's so uh, exciting. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's it's. I think the thing that's hard is that I've been with this now. I've been 
in this research since 2016. Yeah. And I've been with my own words. I finished the dissertation in 2020. And I'm so, so, especially because I had to do all that really intensive edit. I'm mm -hmm. so close to it that I can't see it anymore, if that makes sense. So yep. it's going to be interesting. I, it's going to be interesting with people, how people respond, especially since a love of horror, like we could all list our top 10 favorite horror films and we might have some crossover or we could have 30 different films, you know, yeah. it's a very subjective love, but it still, I still argue that it is anchored in a sameness that feels shared and joyous and campy and trauma-y and all of it. So, and for the release, I kept telling him, I'm like, now's the moment, get this book out, especially... <laughs> Especially since I've had, I had a little behind the scenes drama rama because my project was always queer for fear, mm -hmm. starting mm -hmm. right at the very beginning in 2016. I even I even wrote my proposal that way, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a documentary coming out pretty soon called mm -hmm. Queer for Fear, mm -hmm. which I'm now just hoping will help have people find the book, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's what Joshua Peaches basically. I, I I called Joshua and I was like, I don't know about this. And Joshua's like, bitch, it's an academic book, and this is a thing that's going to be on Shutter. Like, even if your academic book was like a runaway hit, there will still be tenfold humans who watch, you know, the Shutter doc. So in the end, it will benefit you. And I'm like, only if it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've been very, I've been very public. I really hope it's amazing. I, I want I nothing too, yeah. for it, to, but for it to be Absolutely. amazing. Absolutely. Oh yeah, that's that's what I will say. <laughs> and, and as for the release date, I don't have it, but trust me, I will be shouting it from the rooftop because I definitely, well, a bunch of, I mean, four thousand one hundred and seven humans took time out of their lives to very honestly and earnestly answer 66 questions and some of those yeah. questions had 24 parts to them so i think it was actually like 144 questions and the i'll just say i'm one of those humans that this thinks queers are better and <laughs> just gonna be real about it mm -hmm. and i felt like reading through all of the responses and the intelligence and the vulnerability and the honesty and some of the sass, like it was a very, again, a very life affirming moment of, and I'm very, very touched by all 4,107 people who helped create something. Like I feel like I am the person who had to do kind of like the slightly painful work of coalescing Mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff but it's the community that really did the work that makes any sense yeah i believe in horror loving queers <laughs> hell yeah we do too we're the best we're the best <laughs> i mean we really are it's true on that note do we want to talk about the movie you brought with me today heather what movie did you yes. bring what are we talking about I, I know it seems a little bit kind of ridiculous after all of this horror 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 talk you're gonna be like well what really deep impactful horror film did you bring i brought silkwood silkwood 
I totally brought Silkwood. Silkwood. Let me read everyone a brief synopsis <laughs> if they're unfamiliar. Um, based on the book, Who Killed Karen Silkwood by Howard Cohn, a worker at a plutonium processing plant is purposefully contaminated, psychologically tortured, and possibly murdered to prevent her from exposing worker safety violations at the plant. <gasps> Wait, is that real? Dude, like, my work is done. I thought I was going to have to convince everybody that this was a horror movie. Oh, no. But- no, that's, that's no, from that's IMDb. From minus, IMDb the, so. minus the beginning part about based on the book, I threw that in there. The rest of it, that is straight off of IMDb. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Let's <laughs> no, go. This, was a, this is a horror uh-huh. movie. Like, it, it, it's an unconventional choice. We've had, we love unconventional choices on here, let me tell you. Uh, but no, this is absolutely a horror movie. So... Take us back to when you first saw this. How old were you? How did you see it? Give us your horror story. <laughs> I love this. Oh, unpack your trauma. Um, yes. <laughs> okay. So we're just going to get real about this because that's what we do. Um, I was a kid who had some acting out issues when I was a teen. I was a little okay. bit mouthy. I think it was right when I was understanding I was gay and mm. really understanding like, oh, my God, like, what? You know, I mean, this was the this was like early eighties. I didn't know gay people. I yep. yeah, whatever. So I got sent away <laughs> for a while. But oh, where wow. I got sent, they had cable, and I grew up really poor. So cable felt like oh yeah. And for some reason, I don't even. I'm assuming when I was a kid, I only have memories of. HBO and Skinamax. <laughs> so it I'm assuming it would have been HBO then, but it was like I didn't go to the movie theaters to see Silkwood. I was like, you know, 12 years old, but I saw it on cable over and over cuz that's what cable allows. And it fucked with me. It was like the layers of trauma in that film, and I haven't seen Silkwood since I was a little kid, since I was a teenager, but you guys made me rewatch it. <laughs> sure did. And I cried like a baby and all of my trauma is all there still because oh, wow. all of the layers of trauma that the film, like kind of the way the film hooked into me and made me like, the, I guess the easiest way of saying it is that Silkwood, when I was 12, destroyed my psychological sense of safety. <sighs> Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's an existential that one right there. That ruin you at 12. <laughs> totally. It totally destroyed me. And then I guess, you know, I was a weird kid too. Cause like I was like living in a place where I wasn't with my mom and my brother. I got sent somewhere else and it wasn't where I lived and everything. And I was like, I decided I was, I was going to reinvent myself as like a bad girl, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, that like was like, I'm going to start fires. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna start fires. <laughs> no, that's literally my casual arson. Fires, it's totally. Um, I love that. And it's one of those. And I remember like writing on my <laughs> notebook, like I heart Meryl, I heart share. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> so we can get into it, but like that's how I first saw. It. I first saw it as a kid over and over again when I got sent away to live somewhere for a short while. And then I did not revisit it once in my adult, like, I just never revisited it. But it always stood, like, I I knew the film in my head because I had seen it so many times. Um, And I will say, revisiting it, like, because even when I picked it, I was like, okay, is this going to be something you put on? You're like, dear Lord, how am I going (laughs) to convince these two humans? And then by the end of the film, I was like, 
uh, I don't think I have anything to worry about. You don't. But so you said that there's like a lot of layers of of uh, of trauma in here. So let's peel back those layers. What? <laughs> <laughs> give give us an example of maybe like the basic level or the the the, fir- the like overarching one. No, oh, well, there's there's too many. I mean, there's okay. Yeah. So it's kind of split. Okay. One of it is basically cishet men, the mm-hmm. real world, real life, and neoliberal capitalism. Okay. So there's we can get we can we can like unpack that more. But those that was one layer of trauma, and then the other layer of trauma was I was just understanding I was gay and I Mm. had just come out to kids in junior high school being like, I just want you to know I'm gay, which (laughs) in the early eighties was probably not the best idea. I kind of thought like boy George somehow was going to make it okay for me. (laughs) So I always, I always find that interesting because, um, I mean, I was born in 81 and so I was, uh, you know, discovering my sexuality like in the nineties when, there's a lot of shit going on that was very homophobic, you know? It was like we're coming out of the AIDS crisis. It was still happening for a lot of it. There was Matthew Shepard. There was the, you know, Boys Don't Cry uh, movie that was set in Nebraska, from real Nebraska, mm-hmm. where I was growing up in the 90s. There was a lot of ch- a trauma, and um, I didn't come out until I was 30. That's how, like, deeply ingrained the homophobia was. So, So hearing that you came out in the early eighties is like to me, it just, cause it, I, I never, I, I honestly, I thought I was gonna live in the closet for forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, just to go back to the research is because I mean, there's a whole lot. I mean, I think you have acute and insidious trauma. I think all queers have the insidious trauma, but then there's based on all of our life experiences, we all also gather acute trauma. And so, you know, it makes my like, dark little heart kind of like want to hug little, you know, gaby you in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I, I look back at my own life and I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Like, why did I do that? Why did I verbalize it? Cause it didn't make life easy. I still have one no. of my, um, junior high school yearbooks and I don't get rid of it just because <laughs> multiple kids, write, Like multiple kids wrote in the yearbook kind of like, I guess, <laughs> I guess you're okay. You kind of make us laugh. But like, why do you keep telling everyone you're gay? And I'm like, because I'm gay. (laughs) So Silkwood, going back to Silkwood, the other layer of trauma was that, you know, God, it's even hard to unpack it all because the fact that the character is embodied by Cher, who Mm. is now Cher. Cher, (laughs) Um, yeah. Cher. I thought that I was destined to live a life of loneliness and rejection because Oof. ultimately Cher's character, it's like she pined for someone she was never going to have. She was in love with someone she was like, who was never going to be able to love her back the way she wanted to be loved. That whole, like, I love you. Well, I love you too. I don't mean I, it like that. Uh, yep. That's how I mean it. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. like, I, and, and the fact that Cher actually at, you know, toward the end of the movie, when the, you know, Karen Silkwood says, the only thing they kind of call me crazy for is living with you. And she's like, what, because I'm a dyke? And that was the first time I heard someone say it in a way that, like, I know at that time, that was probably her using the derogatory word about herself. Mm -hmm. But from that moment on, I was like, I'm a dyke. I'm a dyke. And it's like how I still identify. Like, I still prefer dyke to almost anything just because (laughs) Dolly told me. (laughs) Good share. (laughs) Good share. So there was that. There's that trauma layer. 
I love that because like, you know, I, I there's the word queer, for instance, like I love the word queer, Me too. but like a lot of people have a lot of trauma associated with that word. And so they don't want to be called queer. You know, they want to be called yeah. gay or, or lesbian or whatever the case may be, because that word has been used as a, you know, punching bag, uh, you yeah. know, and a, a, a sledgehammer for most of their lives. But like, for me, I'm just, I'm happy that it's being reclaimed. So um, I, I find power in reclaiming those words that might have been used offensively as like, yeah, I am. I am queer. What about it? You know? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I mean, of the like, woman loving woman category, I prefer dyke. But overall, I prefer queer because queer to me is, well, it's a politic. It's it's a difference. And it's like, and it's why I was queer for fear. The reason mm-hmm. was is that I think I wrote this, this did not make it into the book, but I think it's in the dissertation. Which will be like the dissertation is just a longer version of the book, and one day it'll be free to everybody because like academic books cost way too much money. Mm -hmm. So there will be an accessibility at one point in time. I just don't know when that is. But I did say I had to make a, I had to write a bunch to say why I was choosing queer and why queer was perfectly suited for the queer for the horror spectator for the LGBTQIA Mm -hmm. plus spectator. And I said, you know, absolutely, there are groups that I am calling queer who it could have been the very last fucking word they heard before they were in a hospital mm-hmm. or didn't even make it to a hospital because things were worse. So mm-hmm. it is a very charged word, but like you just said, it's, it's that charge that gives it its power to me. And when, when Cher says it to, you know, when you're 12, you, you still have like this brain that's still growing and trying to figure things out and you're just not sure. And I was like, quote unquote, in a, you know, foreign place because it wasn't my home. It wasn't mm-hmm. my safety, even though I didn't have a really safe childhood. And there was just something the way Cher says it. It, it still, it actually it totally made me tear up because there's just some, there's something that was so poignant and sad. Like Cher even has like the Dolly character even has that like relationship, but that relationship is like, oh, well, she went back to her husband and you're like, oh, well, you're just destined yeah. for this life to never have a person because the only way you'll ever be accepted is by some weird fluke of something else. And it's not right. going to last. It'll be completely imper- like impermanent. Yeah, I had never... Okay, so I had never... I, Sorry. I, you know, <laughs> I, I had never seen this before. I knew nothing about this movie until you brought it up. And so when I watched it, and I, there was the scene early on that you mentioned where she says, like, well, I, you know, I, I love you differently than I love you too, that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay... Are we? Am I? Am I seeing something here? I, I actually like went back because I was like, "Wait, is this gay?" Like I was, I was. It, t- <laughs> it took me by surprise. So I was like, "Oh, oh, there's even more going on here besides you know the horrendous abuses of workers at the yes. hands of uh, uh, yeah." Like let's so we can even unpack a little bit even more. So some of the other trauma, some of the other traumas in I grew up poor. I was a welfare kid for a really long time mm-hmm. until my mom, like a single parent mom, figured her way out to become a nurse and then life changed a little bit. But by the time she really got her shit together, I was out of the house. The depiction of poor in film is so difficult so many times mm-hmm. because it's like I, I I find there's a there is a layer of trauma to this depiction in the sense of we are looking at rural poor and we're looking at a rural poor that is very very different than the poor i knew i was very urban poor Mm -hmm. for a good chunk of my childhood and urban poor and rural poor are different and especially because in 
oh God, how, this is going to get into like a lot of politics. So let me see if I can bypass a lot of that stuff. I will just say that there's so much kindness in the depiction of Dolly in the sense of like Cher's embodiment of that character. And, you know, I don't know what the real, like, I don't know who the real Dolly was other than I do know she was gay. Mm-hmm. But think about her being gay. Like, I think about like queer elders like that, where I'm like, okay, this is like an entire community that is completely being exploited and, you know, destroyed by this greedy fucking company all over like a plutonium plant in in the eighties, making, you know, well over a billion dollars a year. And she's proud enough to be out, but also her story is sad, but she's accepted and she had her own, a different version of chosen family. Like she was, she was in love with Karen and she clearly loved Drew. Like she loved her little, like Mm -hmm. her little family. And I think I was thinking back like, okay, so this was done in the eighties. They were already in their late twenties. So that means that she was come like she was already coming out. And where did she even meet the mortician? Like where, where did they meet? Did they, I know I the mortician. Love, I, was, I I oh. love the the slow reveal of that with like you know she, well she's a beautician and then when she's doing her makeup and it makes her look basically like a corpse it's so pale and then it comes out that you know she's a beautician at a funeral home it's like what a what a funny little but writerly thing it was like funny and then a one two punch of like funny but then saying like the oh. people who come who work from that plant who come to the morgue were dead before they looked dead before they were they were even dead. And it's like, yeah, she has some really good lines. Well, she says so much with so little. How about that? The way she cuts Drew down that one time, I and I'm, I wrote the, the line down. I don't remember exactly where was it. I get so tired of your jokes. The way Angela delivers that line to Drew, <laughs> is the way she says it is just, it's so cutting. And it's so like... It's 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 like a it's it's like a read. It's like you know. Oh, it's, it's totally so queer, a read. And I love yeah. it. Yeah, I mean that character is amazing, and it's like in like little shout out, like little baby, like let's do a quick, like we'll do like a real quick little horror shout out. So I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name, so I apologize for any mispronunciation mispronunciation of her name. But so that's um, Diana Scarwood, mm-hmm. who is the adult Christina in Mommy Dearest, and she was also in oh god, I'm blanking. Uh, Psycho 3, which I kind of oh, love. Shit. And then you have Fred Ward, you know, oh, yeah. yep. Tremors. Tremors. Fred Ward. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you have Craig T. Nelson. Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> like, oh, he's a fucking scumbag like, in this movie. Oh, my God. The, so going back to trauma. So I said cishet, white men, mm. real life, and capitalism. Like the cishet white men part. <laughs> like also just like these moments where – the way he physically tries to trap the women is yep. so upsetting. It's so gross <laughs> and casual. Because you, and that's just it. Like you realize, oh, this was like nothing. This is this was like normal behavior. Um, well, like Dolly just starting to empty trash cans, and he pushes pushes his chair back, and like I was like, oh, are they like, are they friends? Like I don't know. It, it, it gives off this like air of comfort intimacy. of intimacy and comfort mm-hmm. with somebody that. It's very like as soon as he does it, you realize like he is very. It's a very much one sided thing he's doing, and he's being predatory. And it, so like that sets that tone of like no, nothing here is safe. Like in like the literal sense, and the emotional sense, and the mental sense. Like especially for the women, because there's a lot of women in this movie who are working at this mm-hmm. plant. Like it's a lot of women and a lot of older men. So it's like an and it, it's a part of the like members of a population 
that you don't like expect to work in a plant like this. And then you have obviously the guys in the suits that are above everybody else who are like right. watching, observing, telling you what to do, what you can and can't do, etc. And it's just like this the one of the things one one nuclear anything freaks me out like nuclear war <laughs> nuclear anything is horrifying but also this sense of like she always being watched like this paranoia in the mm. movie that i didn't really think about until closer to the end but how like it's got a big brother's watching you vibe but then you get into the kind of conspiracy she's being followed kind of situation too and it's just terrifying and it made me think about i have friends who are union reps for teaching unions and things like that and like this is still a, i mean i don't i don't think he's going to get murdered or psychologically tortured in a shower but i don't know this <laughs> but like it's wild how this stuff is still like union busting is still happening and how mm-hmm. people in yeah. unions are like was th- like the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking about that and how like we're still trying to fight for basic rights in the in the workplace to be treated like human beings and not be completely taken advantage of by our employers. And it's like I think that so many people on the internet, and it just seems like a di- I don't know if it's a different generation or just you know, po- political, whatever, like saying things like "Oh, you all are so sensitive" and things like things. Are so different now, but it's like no, they're not really. Actually, like neoliberal capitalism has been a problem for fucking decades, and people are just now more willing to call it out. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this movie tries to call it out, but like I don't, I feel like I had never heard of this movie, and it's Mike Nichols who did the Birdcage. Like he's not like an unknown <laughs> director, so it's interesting. But I mean, like Tully, and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, yeah. which is like mm-hmm. I think a queer classic. Yes. Um, <laughs> With you, the graduate, closer wolf, like a work, a working girl, carnal knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, written yeah, by no. No, co-written by Nora Ephron. <laughs> which, which I want to give a props out here, here, here. I'm going to take you on a quick journey. I went on with Nora Ephron. So this is good. This is good. I'm going to sound like such a fucking asshole. Okay, <laughs> I used to work at a movie theater, and I remember interviewing this guy, and I was like, "What's your favorite movie?" And he was like, "When Harry Met Sally." I'm like, "You're not hired." Um, <laughs> He's, and he was just like, it's a perfect movie. I'm like, oh, no, I am. You are way too straight for me. We are not going to get along. <laughs> so I'm admitting I was a dick and it was a long time ago. Recently, someone just made made me watch When Harry Met Sally. Here's what I will say. That guy still shouldn't have been hired. We wouldn't have gotten along. But I was paying attention to the dialogue. And, the, it's, and it, what it comes down to is that I'm just old and crabby and i just don't have a whole lot of time for like cishet nonsense and when harry met sally just has enough cishet nonsense for me that i'm just like i can't connect to it but there was something about that writing that i was like Mm. oh Nora knew what the fuck she was doing because they sounded like real conversations and yes watching silkwood i was like holy fuck this like films don't feel like this anymore and i know that like a lot of kids would just be like it's boring it's slow because it's it's a very it's got a lot of nuance and it's got a lot of layers besides the layers of trauma (laughs) well and i was thinking that too because like these friendships like the three of them in that house feel like a family they have Mm -hmm. i think they are they spend a lot of time with these conversations and these like small intimate moments like when dolly is i think she's she grinding up weed or something and she gets seeds on the floor. And it's like, it seems so small, but I feel like it, just, it establishes the dynamic between everyone. And that, that's also right before the, well, one of the scenes before she tells 
Karen that she's in love with her, but like yeah. the relationships with all these people, and even in the plant, like all of the relationships and like ways everyone knows each other and talks to each other feels very real. Yeah, and I think it has something to do, like as I say, like I think that there's a layer of trauma for me in watching the the depiction of like rural poor in really hooking into a level of um like it is clear with it's like it's a movie that shows and doesn't tell Mm -hmm. we know that there's a lack of access to education we know that there is racism like there's straight up racism in it and these are the people that you're kind of rooting for and it's complicated and you know that that racism actually has to do with the lack of access to education also, can we have a moment for everyone fucking smoking 24-7 in oh there? Just a giant, like the long, slim cigarette just hanging out of Meryl Streep's mouth. And I was like, wow, what a time. What a time to be alive where everyone just smoked cigarettes. Like in meetings at the plutonium plant. <laughs> like Totally. They're like, I mean, there was that one moment where Drew, we can have like a shout out for like, you know, Kurt Russell here. Because uh, uh, there's also the, dude. What right? a dude. So hunky. Uh, there's that one moment when, you know, she's complaining about being contaminated and he's just like, you know, well, maybe you should stop smoking. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I really, that's what really pulled me into this movie is, is the, the, the moments, the, the little moments you mentioned, Mary Beth, the, the seeds falling on the floor. There, it, it's like, if you were to look at this as an efficient screenplay, it's not, but it's because it's not. And it has these little character moments that I think it kind of makes it feel more grounded and real. And I was thinking about this with Meryl because like, I'll be honest, like, yes, she's a fantastic actress. She absolutely is. But I feel like as she's gotten like more into her craft, it becomes more of an actorly type of thing as opposed to more grounded. And I'm watching this and I'm like, this feels this feels so natural. This feels like real people. And I don't feel that with a lot of her performances in the last, uh, you know, decade or so. But here, and I think it's also powered to Nora Ephron's script. I mean, this this does have a little bit of melodrama in places that almost <laughs> verge into camp. I'm going to be perfectly honest. Oh, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. the dialogue is so, it just feels so real. And Meryl just like commands this character so incredibly well. And I just, I was really, it brought me back to remi- reminding myself that, you know, she isn't just the Devil Wears Prada or this like, you know, over the top <laughs> kind of character that she is. She can command her craft back in, in when she's given, I think, a really good script like this. Yeah, I I agree. I think that there's so much truth. At some point in time, when someone has been spoken about in a way, it's like there's an extra textual layer that they become the thing that they're spoken about. So mm-hmm. it kind of removes them from a thing. Whereas this is like, you know... Meryl, Cher, and Kurt at a very, I mean, like also, you know, Kurt Russell has, I mean, you know, I will forever just love him. Well, many films, but The Thing is the one that's like near and dear in my heart, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And I'm watching something like this and I'm like, oh, it's really too bad he wasn't given more. Like he either got to play action hunk or comedy hunk. (laughs) (laughs) So, and he could, he had, he has a layer, like when he goes back and he's looking at the house after the house has been stripped because of the purposeful contamination, uh, and he just walks out and his eyes are all filled with tears and they fucking punches Craig T. Nelson. You're just like, dude, I like have a serious crush on you. <laughs> like, It's yeah. cathartic. And I, another scene that I really, that I really enjoyed was, um, Dolly's coming out moment where she walks out with Angela and, 
you could tell that this was a surprise to both of them. I don't know how it was not a surprise to Karen because like, and maybe she's completely oblivious because, you know, you know, we're all queer. We can see that queer longing there, but like, they're just like staring and, and Kurt is like moving his, uh, his spatula trying to like create eggs. And they're just like, okay, well, I'm fine with it. Are you? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine with it. Well, why are we talking about it? And he's like, it's not surprising. She's like, yeah, but, why are, why are we talking about it? Like, it's just this little funny moment that I, it feels very of the time where it's like, I, I think it back to like, I think it was a friends episode where they're like, not that, or maybe it was Seinfeld. I can't remember. It was one of those two where it's like, not that there's anything wrong with it. Like they, you yeah, know, they, they keep talking about, was it Seinfeld? Yeah. They keep yeah. talking about gay and it's like, not that there's anything wrong with it. And I just <laughs> felt like that this, this movie kind of embodied that. I mean, of that era, but like it was, yeah. it why kind of made we, me laugh. Why are we talking about it then was really funny yeah. too. <laughs> Yeah, 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 no, it it is actually great. Like you're, I'm just gonna like be the like echo chamber. Like, yes, I agree with everything you've said. Like, it's like there are all these great moments, and then back to something that you had said, Mary Beth, about like I grew up in a time when you know it's like all these generations have these different traumas. So I can't even imagine what it's to be like a little kid in school now when you have to learn how to. What I don't even know the words to say with all the shit going on in schools with mm-hmm. all of the gun massacres. But I know that kids get trained in whatever that version of safety protocol yep. when there's a you know gunman, and I'm saying it gendered because that's what it is. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I grew up in the generation of going through uh, nuclear drills yep. in school, mm-hmm. and so that fear, like I was the generate, like my generation. I mean, the generation before me too, because they had all like they were the first the, the boomers. The I boomers, yeah. Fuck the boomers now, but they mm-hmm. did, they did have a lot of trauma. Yeah, and I just there's something about like another layer of the trauma was just understanding all of like trying to get your head around when you're basically a tween or a teen of understanding what why why did they have this plutonium? What were they doing it? Okay, they're making reactors. They're doing it into tablets. What do these reactors do? Okay, these reactors are actually doing electricity. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Like, so it was like, there's just a layer of all of, you know, I'm trying to give like some of the films that totally scarred me. It's like um, the day after. Even well, like, so I was, I yeah. have like a whole list because like, oh, oh, this, oh, oh, yeah. This Bring movie, it. I mean, this movie like just reminded me how much there was like, you know, a lot of times people consider the 80s like a satanic panic, right? But there was yeah. a lot of like nuclear panic of the 80s. And there was a whole oh. lot of movies, both here and over in the UK that were that were basically dissecting it. A lot of them were about, you know, basically us versus Russia. Lost uh, so a lot of them. Like there's the day after, which, you know, aired on ABC and terrified Ronald Reagan to the point that he said it's very effective and left me greatly depressed. I wish he had cared that much about the AIDS crisis. <laughs> um, Ronald Reagan, anyway. Fuck Ronald Reagan, Just, yes. There's, uh, and Nancy. Miracle Mile from 88, Mad Max films, Steel Dawn, <laughs> War Games, Threads, which is a UK version of The Day After. Oh, that's really dark, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Testament. We even had uh, Camille Griffin, who is a filmmaker over in the UK. She created a movie called silent night last year. She came with when the wind blows, which is a cartoon over in the UK about an elderly parent couple going through a bomb dropping in the UK and the aftermath of that. It's horrific, horrific. I remember, and I'm I'm sure you probably do too. I remember the, the main television networks broadcasting emergency test signals for nuclear war in the eighties. There were fallout shelters were a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just, 
oh yeah, this film like hit it hits like when I said that there's layer of traumas and they're late. I mean, what the fuck is going on right now? Right now, there's a whole like little generation of kids looking up nuclear war again because of what's going on with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. It's funny that you say that because I did find an article from the Washington Post about Ooh. how um, the Ukraine is. It's talking about how Gen Xers who grew up afraid of nuclear war between Russia and the U.S. are having PTSD and deja vu. And there was a there's a, a line in there from Matthew Chance, who is a CNN international correspondent, and he said he remembers as a kid crying himself to sleep thinking that he wasn't going to make it to adulthood. Yeah. It was I mean it, okay, I must say some more things. Everyone's just going to hate me. Please don't hate me. I'm actually quite like likable. Um <laughs> I have a hard time with certain things like maybe Stranger Things or the Fear Street trilogy when they're looking back and I think maybe you Terry could speak more to Fear Street cuz I think our our age difference, I think the 90s were your like you were like I'm talking about the eighties and you were that age in the nineties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm curious. So I will tell, I will just speak to stranger things. Cause it's literally hitting at like my age at that time. Yeah. You know, when, and I have this really weird issue with it. And it, and it sound like a crabby boomer and I don't want to be a fucking crabby Gen Xer, although I am a Gen X grump. So it's like, whatever. Well, I know what but, you're going to, I think I know what you're going to say. But it's, it's, it's this very, it's this, nostalgic look back at a time that makes it kind of neon hued and clean. Mm-hmm. And when you like my memories of the eighties are more like the mystery meat sandwich that is in the movie Silkwood. It's like, it was Brown. It was kind of dark. It was gray. It was more muted, even though there was lots of color. I mean, there was, there was all the neon stuff and there was all the leg warmers, but it didn't have that sanitized feeling that we now look back at. And I think that there's something just interesting to keep analyzing about how what n- the need and the purpose for nostalgia. Because literally, we wouldn't have nostalgia is something that's actually almost created. It didn't exist until we had a way of thinking and organizing time differently. Probably mainly because of the industrial revolution. So, I just listening to you read the thing about people having PTSD for a time when, like. It was. I remember. I mean, the day after we had to watch it in class, we had to watch it in school. And I was just like, I can't. Number one, that would never happen today because kids can't be forced to almost do anything, which is making educating them really, really hard because parents have all these, you know, opinions rightly and wrongly. Um, So I'm just curious if you feel the same thing when you look at something like the beginning of the first um, Fear Street trilogy the first one that's like very 90s do you Mm -hmm. feel that same thing where you're like that's not my memory of the 90s it's it's absolutely not my my memory and i remember uh i reviewed i reviewed that movie for uh for my site and uh i like i I love that movie i really do but um i was thinking as i was taking notes i was like well this is not the reaction that would happen if someone came out. Like everyone is too chill about this. Cause like we're not, that's set in like what, what was 96. Right. And that's set mm-hmm. like at the time of Matthew Shepard's death and all that kind of stuff. Like this is not a good time to be openly queer when you're a kid. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I do think that there is a lot of nostalgia for that era. I, it really like rang to me because I loved all the music choices and like the music drops and everything it was like, Oh, I remember that as a kid. So like it kind of triggered that nostalgia vibe. And I, I went with it as sort of like a, the way I kind of approached it was like, this is something I would have loved to have seen when I was that age in the nineties. Like that might have actually helped me. 
totally. understand my 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 sexuality and totally. be a little more comfortable because I never had that in the nineties. I didn't have anything. I didn't. I it was like you know I I grew up. In my in the eighties, I lived in Alaska, and then I lived in Nebraska. So I lived from like no. isolated to like deeply conservative area, and it was like I never saw myself in in movies or in literature. The only time I ever saw myself in literature was reading Stephen some Stephen King books, where the queerness was always centered around either violence or they were a bad guy, or it was like there was queer things happening to people, like sodomy and anal sex but it was bad it was presented as evil and so there's like a lot of a lot of that kind of trauma so for me seeing this movie set in the 90s i was like okay yes this is rose-colored glasses but like this is what i would have wanted to see absolutely i will i will take that and i will extend it and say we could never have seen that because of like right we just wanted to see ourselves Mm -hmm. we just wanted to see ourselves right and it's um I think a lot about it because I do I do go in for a lot of like, you know, I mean, I just feel like the 80s are everywhere right now. And it's yeah. really it's like kind of interesting. And I kind of see it now slowly like where the 90s are picking up and they'll, they'll supplant the 80s as like, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's maybe they have to pay attention to the marketing dollar of as the generations get older. They're like, well, now the Gen Xers are too old to like fall in for <laughs> giving us all their dollar dollar bills for nostalgia. But there is something also to that sanitize hitting it beat per beat, like beat by beat for like all these things that trigger. Like I will hear songs that I fucking hated when I was a kid in the eighties and I'll be like, yeah. And I'm like, what <laughs> yeah. the hell is that? And it makes me want, makes me want to go uh, back to school and study it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, I think I think it's interesting the way because like I'll, I'll be honest the moment moment uh, uh, Fear Street opened up with Nine Inch Nails closer I was like okay <laughs> I'm sold yeah this movie is an A plus for me <laughs> like it was it was just that like jolt of memory of growing because I I mean I still love Nine Inch Nails but like back then just like hearing that song on the radio and being like yeah I want to fuck you like an animal like that's you know it's like yeah yeah so it was like immediately I was like okay I'm I'm tuned in this could be a shit movie but I'm a hundred percent it's interesting it makes me want to talk talk more about this nostalgia in in horror in this and how it's used how it's used to hook you in because it's like i have watched every single stranger things i will bitch about things i will totally mm-hmm. complain about things but i keep watching it because yeah. i'm i'm just at this point i'm just hooked in but right i'm also trying to think like to like not take it too far away and like start talking about nostalgia i'm trying to think of other trauma stuff from Silkwood. The one thing that like really jumped out at me in watching it was the the shower sequences. Ugh. Those are true just horror scenes. Like, yeah. Sh- straight up. Like there's what four of them basically? Because yeah. Thelma's yep. is the first Thelma's one. Thelma's the then very first one. Yeah, and then there's and three. Yeah. That one is it's so I was thinking about this particularly just a little bit ago because Mary Beth you're talking about the 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 women in the work center and I was thinking all of the trauma in this movie is inflicted on the women because mm-hmm. you have Thelma who is dehumanized. You know, there's the, she's, you know, she has her wig on and when she's getting shower, her wig is like literally tossed to the side as she is being scrubbed and, and washed down. There's Gilda who has, you know, trauma. And then there's, uh, you know, the, our two main characters, Dolly and, and, and Karen that are, all of this is inflicted on them and you don't see the men, dealing with any of this they're the ones doing the washing well and like the thing too is you the women are the only ones getting washed getting these horrible chemical showers where their skin is basically scrubbed off and with karen it escalates as things get as she gets more involved in the union and you're like you're basically 
try like water, water torture. torture, like not waterboarding, but like shoving like that in her face and scrubbing her down and purposely contaminating her so she has to go through that. And it's like in her eyes, yes. And the men in this are like, well, think about the company and like all of their talk is always just about like, well, think about the bigger the bigger implications and don't think about yourself, but like the company and like, yeah, obviously there's the fear of people losing their jobs. If things like this are exposed, which I think this does get into with her friend, like her friends that are like, please don't talk to me. Like I'm just trying to live my life. I like my job. And again, it's that horrible thing of capitalism. Like you have a job, you want to stay in it you want to keep it. It's so insidious. Well, like you're in a rural area too. So, you know, there probably isn't as many job opportunities that are nearby. Yeah. And- it's a company town. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah like, and like, that's what Angela says is that, you know, it's like you see McKee and what is it? Is it? It's, oh, no, uh, it's uh, Kerr and McGee. Yeah, Kerr yeah. McGee. You see their names everywhere. It's on the streets. There's, you know, streets that are named after them. Like, this is your life and this is your livelihood. And so I think that's what's so insidious about this is it's like, yeah, they're killing us, but we have a job. <laughs> Yeah, and how terrifying is well, that? Is and it, like, is it at one point? Is it Drew or is it Craig T. Nelson's character that's like I don't remember who it was. Like, who cares about cancer? Like, we still have a job. Someone said that at mm. one point about how like it doesn't matter. Like, cancer doesn't matter. So there's like okay, let's just like go down to like the horror scene. So like, first of all, you're right. Every because I mean we like I don't know if it's still used. It was, but there was a time where we would talk about the Silkwood shower, right? Like that mm. is a it's almost like a horror trope. It is a form of body torture. And there, all those scenes are really horrific to watch. There is another scene that's just interesting to me is like when they're like in the dark of night, there's those nefarious things going on with blowtorches and she asks about it. Oh, yeah. And you're just like, and they actually cue in kind of like scary horror mm-hmm. music yeah. in that scene. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. And then we find out later, like kind of very tropey that they chopped and buried a hot vehicle Fucking truck, mm-hmm. which then you think about that and you think about radioactive contamination you're like where the fuck are all these vehicles that are that were like all buried around in oklahoma (laughs) like dear lord so those are kind of like the overt ones i feel like those are like kind of like very kind of lean into kind of horror tropes in a way but then there's a scene that actually kind of almost terrifies me is when they're at that union meeting and the doctor's explaining basically the dangers of plutonium and mm-hmm. Thelma stands up and it's kind of like, kind of like, you know, the guy that he basically responds, we, you, we can take out your lung we with that be a little lung. extreme. And then she sits down and then the woman behind her, the one they had had the party for uh, raises her hand, but the husband goes to swat her hand yep. down. And then she, I'm just like that scene again, showing and not telling it says everything. And it's it does. horrifying in so many ways. And like the number of times that they repeat, so we know it's a company in town. We know this is an incredibly economically depressed area. We know that these people are being, I don't even know the word, they're being exploited to the hilt mm-hmm. and nobody cares. And they're all working double shifts. And you know that they're still living in basically the working right. poor. I mean, it's like that. I, I think that's what the what's so great about the opening of this of this movie is that you have that, that kind of rural house that is often, you know, away from town where three people, three grown adults who, um, yeah, you know, two of them are dating, but like they're forced to live there because they can't afford anything. And yet you find out that they're working themselves to the mm-hmm. bone where the, the, there's the early scene where Karen is trying to find someone to cover for the weekend. Cause she wants to go to her kids and in Texas and, 
there's like that kind of desperation there where it's like you're working so hard and you have bought into this idea of capitalism that you don't seem to want to know what it is doing to you that ignorance is bliss and i think that's where that that's what what you're saying in particular about that scene is that he, he kind of hits her hand down and it's like he doesn't want to know any of this he wants no. to live in that kind of ignorance that Maybe bad things are happening, but head down, nose to the grind. We got to yep. keep working. Yeah, no, exactly. And I feel like, again, this is a film in, was it 83? We're now in 2022. And let's think about how mm. I would say right before the pandemic started, I'm not going to say unions were dead because there were unions, but they're very kind of select areas where there were mm -hmm. unions are still strong. Guess what's having a comeback right now as a whole bunch of people got shat on during a pandemic. And it was, again, yeah. a very, this was like, we tend to talk about things in a lot of race-based ways because we live in a, we live in a country that's founded on racism, mm -hmm. but racism at its core is actually a class issue. I mean, yeah. we construct all of this stuff, right? So it's like the way that the themes of living in a like plutocracy of Silkwood all those years ago are almost more relevant in our Amazonian life today where they're trying to union bust. They have had so many exposés on the unsafe and harmful work practices that a racialized workforce is, you know, that that's who's enduring the worst of Amazon's employment mm -hmm. as an employer. That shit's really scary. And it's scary mm -hmm. that like, you know, Another layer of thing that kind of traumatized me as a kid when I said it, it kind of destroyed my psychological sense of safety is like, where, it, where do you feel safe in this movie? Like, it's like hard to actually find a moment of safety because even when Karen gets folded into the arm of the union guys, I feel that they were incredibly exploitative and didn't give oh, a fuck were. about oh. Karen. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> right? She was a pawn for them too. It's like, she was just like, oh yeah, she's like the poor girl who can do stuff for us and we don't really care about her. Like she'll get us the film and like, we don't really, we just need her to name names and get us information. We don't care what that means for your safety. Like just get it. Right. To us. And whenever she would bring up like safety issues, they wanted to keep focusing on, on the, the, um, the, the fraudulent x-rays, yeah. the ones that they're being doctored. Like, well, let's focus on that. Let's focus on that. And she's like bringing up all these issues of like, Everything from um, there's two showers for 75 people on a shift. Like she brings up all the stuff and they're like, ah, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on let's talk about this X-ray or let's talk about you know the, these horrible well, the effects on people. That they listen to her because she runs out and says, hey, I saw the doctor X-rays. Like that's the only mm -hmm. way they're taking her seriously when she's like, hey, no, this is a really big problem. And the only reason that they care about it is they say, oh, it'll kill all of these people in the state. And obviously, mm -hmm. yes, that is a problem, but it's like. This And this fucks me up so much all the time is about like how governments slash big organizations are willing to sacrifice people for what they deem the greater good. But it mm -hmm. really and they're like, well, we're saving people. It's like, what the fuck kind of rationale is that? Like these people are human beings that are dying because of your need for money, your need like for power. And it just always makes me so sick. And it's so blatant in this movie. It's just horrifying. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like it's actually a 40-year-old film. No. Like, I mean, it's like those things. And that, I think that's what's scariest. I think I think when you get older, it's also like, a, you know, 
you look back at your things and you're like, okay, well, th- we definitely are making progress because the just talk, let's talk just about queerness, right? We, we are making progress because when I talk to like kids, queer kids, they can't quite compute that you couldn't see yourself in media. And I'm like, yeah. there were no one, there was no one. We had nothing. Yep. <laughs> so we are making progress because, you know, we got gay cowboys everywhere now, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't want to sound like one of those persons that is like, But that is something that's a little bit different and it feels like you're allowed to have these things because the real machine of everything running everything, all this plutocratic like life, it is worse. The like, you know, our wealth inequality is literally off the charts. I mean, I don't even know how many billionaires we have right now, but you know, billionaires should not exist. There's no need for billionaires. And when that movie ended, I just remember, I just kind of sat there a little bit stunned and I was like, oh my God, this like, I might be completely re-traumatized. Like all those scars had been kind of buried for like Mm -hmm. 30 something years. And now I'm like paying attention to what's going on in Russia. What's going on with all these corporations that have basically taken over kind of running the country, (laughs) you know, Um, and how you don't feel safe anywhere. Right. But yeah, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that the corporations running the country, it, it's sad that it, it takes um, a corporation that leans liberal to, in terms of like social issues, to get something changed. You know, it's it's like we have to rely on <laughs> corporations to to maybe threaten pulling out funds or like leaving um, Georgia or, you know, that kind of stuff for there yeah. to be even a modicum of change and that's uh it's insidious in its own way like it's it's nice to see in some ways because like i don't feel like as someone that grew up in that time you know grew up before now Mm -hmm. where like you didn't see that before and now you you do see it and so it, it makes you feel like okay there are people here high up making a lot of money that can see you but at the same time it's insidious because it's 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 leans into the the capitalism machine yeah and it's like let's be real even these ones that are doing quote unquote i'm using my you know scare quotes air yeah. quotes of right i'm glad that they exist i'm glad that they're all mm-hmm. not all this like mckee kerr shit or kerr right. mckee shit you know but they're all still at the bottom at the base of everything it's still always going to be profits over people and that's a hard thing to really kind of digest and it feels more and more because the gap is growing as I get older instead of closing as I get older. It just feels harrowing. Mm. And then on top of that, if you want, like like props to all the whistleblowers out there in the world who have ever done anything to try to expose things. I, I got in a fight with a friend who was like, kind of how dare that person leak the Supreme Court dockety memo-y thing about Roe v. Wade. And I was like, oh no, fuck yeah. Like that's a person who like, Dear Lord, thank God for them. They're like, oh, they're just like kind of like through the whole structure. This is a lawyer friend. They kind of threw the whole structure of the Supreme Court into question. And they're going to like, and I was like, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> we need I that am done. so bad. I am done. And I think about like, um, like Chelsea Manning. I just think about people who we are watching a movie about a real person. We don't know the mm-hmm. real person, right? But I think what the movie tries to tell you is that she was no angel, right? She had right. a lot of crap. She was messy. She was a messy person, but she tried to do the right thing. And she was trying to be the whistleblower. And the, every layer of human t- 
turned on her. She was ostracized by her peers. She got contaminated by her bosses. She lost her love. Even Dolly, who was in love with her, turned on her. And it's just like the strength it takes. And then to have it all be for a kind of not. And I mean, she died at 28. I mean, she was killed. Mm-hmm. Like, um, So I'm just kind of depressed. And thanks, guys. well so i did one last thing i did want to bring up is is dolly i wanted to talk a bit more about the real life person because her name was not dolly it was dusty oh they paid um for her likeness they gave her money for it and then they changed her name i don't know why but her name was dusty and after Karen's death, she kind of lived a tumultuous life. So she climbed the exterior wall of the Kermiki plant at one point with a shotgun and was charged with unlawful entry. Uh, she was reported in 1980 for being as, as missing, and people thought she was murdered because she was supposedly writing a tell-all book. It turns out she was in New York City trying to sell and with a publisher – the tell-all book that never materialized. In 82, she walked into a nursing home in Santa Fe with a shotgun and took 170 people hostage and said she was protesting against the nursing home after learning a resident was being treated poorly and being denied food. Holy shit. Well, you just added layers to my trauma because that really <laughs> kind of breaks my heart. And it, it, it's like one of those stories that I love. I want queers. Like I like my queers a little dangerous, but I mm-hmm. think that that danger is coming out of a place of severe um, oh, trauma. Yeah, yeah. Because like the last one of the last big things um, was that in '95 she was char- she was charged with domestic abuse by her girlfriend. <gasps> oh shit! Um, so there's no, like, but I, but I think you see all of this, and I think I, I honestly you can see kind of I think you can draw lines to this trauma that she you know suffered that sent her on on a this this idea of trying to carry on maybe Karen's legacy in some way because I I mean it's it's pretty extreme to walk into a, a nursing home and take 170 people hostage but in her mind she's probably doing it to like again prove a point and, and save people so there's like I messy messy care messy person yeah um but I think I don't know. I, I honestly, I do kind of think that Cher kind of en- enveloped that in her character a little bit. Yeah, I messiness. mean, honestly, it pri- props to all three of them. I mean, I think they all did a great job of making all three. I mean, I loved Drew. He had a Confederate flag, like it's, <laughs> and I'm like, I love you. I'm like, uh-huh. oh no, I'd hate you, and you would definitely hate me, but maybe not because you think Dolly's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> Right. Why you are know? we talking about it? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> like very much an '80s thing of like Confederate flag doesn't mean that anymore, and it's like, mm, oh, no, it's definitely. I mean, because I, I was thinking, I was trying really hard to think about what I thought being Confederate flag meant as a kid, and what I was kind of taught. Because, like, I mean, I got like a shit education. Number one, I was poor, so I was in poor schools, which means you have a shit education. And then it was like confederate flag was just the south they were pro-slavery right so even then it was like like... but i think it's a really beautiful way of saying like um i think it's really important to show that extraordinary things come from ordinary people and people Mm -hmm. are messy like you know martin luther king was a messy guy he had Mm -hmm. a lot of things that he did not do right but he did an incredible amount like right and change things and I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I do appreciate the messiness. I do, do feel a little sad to hear. It just yeah. sounds like Dusty's. Is Dusty still alive? No, I think yeah. she passed away in 
Oh, 20, 2012. She yeah, passed not away very in long 2012. Ago. I mean, I appreciate all your... I did not do any... I, I There was like a documentary I watched somewhere in the 80s or maybe the 90s about Karen Silkwood just to like, kind of like, could they definitively prove she was murdered? The documentary did kind of say she was murdered. All the evidence on the car shows that she was slammed from behind and that kind of stuff. But right. yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know what had happened with anyone else. Yeah, so I just... I was looking on Wikipedia and just... Uh, I go down, I find myself falling down rabbit holes all the time and yeah. whenever I'm doing like research for it. But yeah, no, she passed away in 2012 um, from cancer. Well, wow. not surprising. <laughs> it's like, I, I just have a quick question. Like, did you like the film? Each of you? Well, that is a good, that's a good place for to, us to, uh, uh, to, to get into our wrap up. Our wrap up. Oh, before <laughs> we, before we do do that, I, and I think I know the answer. Do you still find this film? as deeply traumatizing as when you were a kid. Yes. I feel completely re-traumatized. I feel like, oh my God, what do, what kind of whistleblowing do I have to do? What do I have to, how do I like affect change? But I also don't want to be murdered by a company while I'm trying to like make everything better. I don't know. I feel scared and paralyzed. I'm okay with my queerness though. Oh <laughs> yeah. That's the important thing. <laughs> I feel okay in that. So, all right, let's get to our ratings out of five for this all movie. Right. Terry, how many Meryl Streep's mullets out of five? do you give this very serious movie i swear but i couldn't stop thinking about her mullet while i was watching this movie it was a powerful mullet i was power in that mullet man like shit yeah anyway i wasn't sure what to think of it initially um it is it is as as people probably say it is a little slower than i than i was expecting it is it's a longer movie and it was a little slow but i found myself incredibly enraptured like i like we talked about earlier with the small moments that sort of ended up helping build these characters um i think some of the melodrama particularly between karen and drew was a little um a little campy at times the the moment where he's leaving and he drives off and then slams his car stopped gets out and he says you know, I loved it, baby. I'm like, okay, <laughs> really? Really? What are we doing here? But it's such a Kurt Russell moment. Oh, it, it, it so is. But I was like, okay, in a, in, a, in a movie that has a lot of really great character moments, that was not it, sis. I was like, okay, what are we doing here? So I think there are moments of that that like really kind of uh, unfortunately brought me out of the movie. But I, I, you know, I was just so taken by Meryl Streep's acting and the and the dialogue as we said that um I'm gonna gosh I'm probably gonna give it uh I'm gonna give it four I'm gonna give it four Meryl Streep uh mullets out of five um <laughs> for myself what about you Mary so Beth? I initially wanted to give it three and a half but this conversation has actually made me mm -hmm. bump it up to a four because I think there really is so much really interesting stuff going on with this movie especially for that time I think one, it's Mike Nichols, and I love the birdcage, which is this is very much the opposite of the fucking birdcage, but still. Um, but I... Range. Range. I know, but it's just... What I never knew about this person. I never knew about this woman and what she tried to do for workers' rights. And I always appreciate being able to, like, see... Especially see how much women, and like and with Dolly, a queer woman, are, like, involved in history in a way that you don't you don't see a lot. Or people try to hide it or bury it or just, you know, make it seem like there aren't a lot of women and queer people like trying to make the world a fucking better place because cis white men ruined it. Um, anyway, um, but yeah, this movie, I think, got in my head about 
and again, it feels so relevant today with like the way people are treated in unions, but also the way that workers are treated at like Amazon. My brother works at Amazon and tells me the horrible shit that they make people like how they treat people at Amazon. And like, you know, this isn't a new story and it's not an old story. It's just a story that's been our reality for a really long time. And yeah, I, it's for four Meryl Street mullets out of five. Um, Heather, you have the final word. How many well, months? Uh, because a year after Karen Silkwood was killed, the plant closed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go one step up and I'm going to give it four and a half Meryl Street mullets because um, she lost her life, but she fought an incredible battle. She did bring a light to all of the atrocities happening at that plant. And But like you said, it's there are still just... Kermagees everywhere right now. And I also have a friend that worked at Amazon and wasn't allowed to tell me a lot of things because they signed things that say you can't mm-hmm. tell mm-hmm. you about. But I heard a number of things that I actually thought that he was making it up, that that was mm. that atrocious in the name of productivity and profit mm. at the expense of a human. So I'm going to give it, maybe, maybe I'll give it like four mullets and a boob because she does that great boob flash. <laughs> Oh my God. She sure does. I was like, this is my bitch right here. She just like will flash a tit in the middle of the workplace when a guy's giving I'm like, yes. Oh, right. And then, like, there's so many moments. There's like, I know I'll shut the fuck up, but like all just like the like, again about the power of showing and not telling her working through the like lunchroom and just eating everyone's food. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know who she is. And if she was your friend, you'd be like, bitch, fucking get it together. But you'd still love her and totally mm-hmm. respect yep. all that chutzpah. Yep. <laughs> a lot exactly. of moxie. So four, four and a boob. Four and a boob. I love it. Uh, but one one final point that made that I just remembered that made me laugh so hard is the scene after Dolly is with Angela and Angela is ready to move in. I'm like, okay, this is the, the U-Haul lesbian trope, like to the max right there. That like the second date, you got yourself a U-Haul and you're moving together. I was like, ah. Uh, and they're just sitting in the car with the groceries like, oh. I guess she's moving in I guess in she's now. a new roommate. I mean, Angela is really a very shining star in that movie. Yeah, she really was. I I really I really liked her. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much, Heather, for joining us to talk about Silkwood and introducing this movie to us. Uh, where can our listeners find you, and what do you have coming up that you can share? Um, you can find me at Queer for Fear on Instagram, and if you feel the need to email me, you can email me at queerforfear at gmail dot com. And I guess the next. My my next big birth into the world will be when the book is released. So maybe we can come back and talk about trauma. Hell just yeah. trauma. I mean, that's what you do. But yeah. we can talk about just horror and trauma. And I will have read yours. So then we can have – we can put our works in dialogue with one another. Sweet. I love that. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with the movie Silkwood? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It does. Uh, Thank you to Eric Parr for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>